and gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, if I sound a little weird or out of it, it's only because I'm, a, I'm feeling a little weird and out of it. I just got back yesterday from a short but pretty intense uh, family and friends vacation in upstate New York. You may have seen me tweeting pictures of somebody else's dogs while I was up there. Um, they're very good dogs, but they're not my dogs. Uh, but my dogs were well taken care of. Um, I saw this morning this tweet you know it's not it's a short thread from adam davidson who um you know is a former podcaster planet money guy this american life new yorker yada 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 and he says uh i often hear podcasts that could be great but do all the wrong things and so and so i write what they should do instead. And he does a little thread of advice. He says, get to the interesting part right away. I like to check the time when I first hear something surprising, entertaining, etc. in a podcast, just as a side vests have no sleeves. Um, then he goes on and says, it's often several minutes in clock is ticking. Get to the inter- interesting part right away. Also, as an aside, did you know that we have, we, as in, I mean, humanity, not counting people named Todd, have actually successfully um, teleported uh, a file or a piece of information um, using quantum entanglement. Uh, It's fascinating stuff. I started reading about it this week because I talked to a guy who knew about it. Anyway, uh, back to the thread. Then after, you can introduce all of your guests, give their title, ask them about the history of their career. But, he says, this is boring. General chit-chat, sponsor message, guest's title. Um, I am the editor in chief of the dispatch, by the way, and I hold the cliff as just chair in applied Liberty at the American enterprise Institute. And I am six, three, um, he says, this is interesting. The following is interesting. Wow. This new crazy thing, a bit more on this new crazy thing than a reset in which you intro the show, quick intro to the guest sponsorship, if needed more interesting stuff. Um, And then he says, get into the guest's background by not just reciting the resume, but explaining their background and how it is relevant to the conversation. Then add other voices. Never introduce all of your guests before anything interesting has happened. That's all for now. Now, I have no guests today, so uh, and I don't know if that was interesting. And I'm not even sure if it's entirely right. It depends on like what he means by a podcast, because there are different kinds of podcasts out there. This uh, the end of the spectrum is if 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 you're doing the sort of X Y chart of this, this is way over, or I should say a bell curve chart. You know, this is like way over on the self indulgent side of the wonky uh, self indulgent wonky podcast spectrum because I'm doing this alone. Um, but I'll revisit this when I have guests the next time, um, which will be uh, next week. So anyway. Um, um, enough of the general chit chat. Uh, and if you have something really interesting on the quantum entanglement stuff, send it my way. Cause I'm kind of really getting into it. Um, uh, I haven't followed the news super closely this week, but in part because the dispatch had a little scoop on the secret service stuff, um, that, you know, we had me and Steve, uh, had to get into some long conversations about, um, I'm a little more up to speed on that. I am speaking purely as a pundit here, um, not, you know, carrying water for the, the reporting side of the dispatch. But, um, I do think there could be a lot of there, there there's again, it's all, it's a lot of smoke right now. We don't know how much fire there is, but you know, the, the deleting of these text messages, I mean, the, I think this is in some ways the lowest form of punditry. You know, I've, and I've said that for a million years, like what if this was Obama or what if this was Clinton um, um, or what if this was Bush, right? You know, um, but as a matter of analysis, I do think it's it's useful to do in your own head from time to time, just as a check to see if your partisan blinders are getting the better of you. And if you had this exact same fact pattern 
um, which of course is very unlikely because Trump is sort of sui generis. Um, I guess you can't be sort of sui generis, you're either sui generis or you're not, but um, it's sort of like either you're unique or you're not. But um, um, if you had a similar fact pattern, right, um, under a democratic president, the um, all of the usual suspects would going be going bonkers about all of this. Oh, sure, it's just a coincidence that you deleted these texts. Oh, sure, it's just a coincidence that of all the texts that are unrecoverable, it's this tiny fraction of ones that at least presumptively um, have to do with January 6 and January 7 or January 5 and January 6. And, um, uh, you know, and then you have the stuff like Pence. One of the things that I think this really throws new light on is Pence's refusal to get in the car on January 6. You know, there was that whole exchange um, in the hearing where they were talking about, you know, what went on on January 6 with Pence, where Pence just flatly said, under no circumstances, am I getting in that car? And, you know, one of his aides is like, look, it's a Secret Service agent. He'll, tell, he'll go where he wants, wants you to go. And now, and like, I just took that at face value at the time. And now I have to be like, um, well, maybe not, right? Because if the whole point was to get Pence to refuse to... Um, certify the election and he refused to refuse to certify the election one way you can have the same result is by getting him away from the capitol and let not letting him back in and you know i'm not saying that there was some sort of you know effort to kill pence i mean there was one but not from the secret service and not necessarily and not from the trump people in the white house um but you could see why pence would be you can see why Pence might be suspicious that he could not trust the Secret Service for because he thought it was somehow compromised and might take him away from the Capitol and make it impossible for him to certify the election. And that's that should be bad enough, right? It doesn't have to be some, you know, you know, Brad Thor novel where they, you know, they wanted to, you know, deliver Pence in the middle of the mob and say, okay, here you go, hang him. It doesn't have to be anything like that. Um, it just has to be like, and it doesn't even have to be that that was the plan. It just has to be plausible that in Mike Pence's mind that he thought that might be why, um, the secret service wanted him in that car or that why it was a bad idea to go along. Um, because we shouldn't be in a situation in this country. I think this is a kind of obvious point where the vice president of the United States amidst uh, a mob attack that was at least inspired in some way by the sitting president of the United States, that a mob attack on the Capitol, the vice president shouldn't have to worry that the Secret Service is some sort of politicized praetorian guard that is doing the political bidding of the president of the United States who just lost an election. That seems to me like something, you know, that A, we should not want, and B, we should get to the bottom of. Um, but I think, you know, just more broadly, I think the, it now seems we don't know, right? We don't know for sure, but it seems like the, and this is part of the reporting from the dispatch, it seems like the Casey Hutchinson claim about the, the, the con confrontation between Trump and the driver and the Secret Service in his own car has much more plausibility than um, it might've had even two weeks ago or two days ago. And, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of my friends, I don't, I don't begrudge them. They just said, they just flatly don't believe it. They wrote that they don't believe it. Um, you know, rich Lowry, you know, just says he does, he flatly doesn't believe it. He's not saying that she's a liar. Um, uh, she was just, you know, passing on what she had heard. Um, I've always been much more let's wait and see on it. I joined in the criticism of, of the January 6th team for not um, nailing it down before raising it because it wasn't necessary to their case and it gave critics something to pounce on to uh, say this part's wrong, so therefore everything else is wrong. But, you know, it tells you something that 
you know, when the, the people who are allegedly in the car who claimed, uh, who Hutchinson said told him the story, told her the story, they originally came out guns a blazing, probably the worst, not the best, you know, idiom. Um, but they came out chomping at the bit to say that they were willing to testify under oath that this never happened. And it now seems pretty clear that they never intended to testify under oath. They were just doing spin cycle management, sort of like, you know, the, this is a very Trumpian form of spin. It's not unique to Trump, uh, you know, Democrats and Republicans have been doing this kind of stuff. I paid more attention most of my career the way Democrats do it. But like, you know, remember the Trump thing about telling the DOJ, look, just say it's corrupt and we'll do the rest. Say the election was corrupt and we'll do the rest. We'll handle the rest. Or when Trump apparently said to the Ukrainians, um, you know, just say Biden is under investigation for corruption. We'll, we'll handle the rest. The, Trump, you know, and his team, they understand that the headline is all you need uh, to push a storyline in the press and you can wait for the facts later. And um, it now seems to me that uh, Ornato and Engel and or their lawyers um, were basically playing this game of, of let's quote unquote debunk this woman's story by interrupting the narrative by saying it wasn't true and that we're willing to testify, but that not actually being willing to testify. And that just puts the burden of proof back where it belongs, I think. Um, and it really does raise, you know, the question, like, let me put it this way. I think it was always outrageous that Trump had made Tony Ornato um, a political appointee inside the White House while Ornato did not relinquish his position inside of essentially a civil service I'm not sure if that's the correct legal term for it for the Secret Service, but you know, a non-political agency, which is this, which has to be what the Secret Service is. Bernardo didn't like leave the Secret Service. He was just put. He was just dispatched. Um, you know, on as a you know, sort of dual service as a political operative in the Trump White House, and that I mean, if, if you got to have some serious church state division when it comes to things like the secret service. And this is, you know, this is the kind of thing I mentioned, you know, Praetorians before, but like, that's the kind of thing that the history of, um, the armed protectors of Caesar or, you know, or the president or whatever, um, needing to not get involved in politics is a lesson proven by history going way back. And, um, this, was always really, really fishy. And I don't trust the denials about all of the deletions. You know, when you're told don't delete anything, first of all, you really shouldn't have to be told in the context of January 6th, like a prudent manager would be like, all right, we know there are going to be investigations for this stuff. Just, you know, don't delete anything. This, this is obviously a potential essentially crime scene. Um, you know, don't, don't delete anything until you hear from us, but then to delete stuff after an inspector general told you not to, um, is just so unbelievably fishy. And again, it's possible that this is a less sinister scenario than it really seems like to me right now. Totally possible. Um, you know, and going by history and my views on the, how incompetence and stupidity tend to Trump conspiracies, um, as um, plausible explanations for events, it may be even be likely, and I'm just sort of caught up in it. Um, totally open to that. But, um, like, again, if you flip this around and the partisan actors were different, you could be sure that everyone either biting their tongue or being quiet or, or um, finding clever ways to sort of say, um, there's no, there's nothing here would be screaming, you know, at the top of their lungs. I mean, it's kind of amazing. You have, I mean, people, you probably remember when, um, you know, Trump was in, was running for office and was the whole locker up thing and she bleached her server and, and all this stuff. 
I think what Hillary Clinton did with her with with the server, with the emails, um, I think the whole Benghazi thing, that was all legitimate. Doesn't mean every criticism didn't was was, you know, substantive. It doesn't mean that necessarily coverage was um what wasn't, you know, overheated in places and at times, particularly on the right. That's all those are all debatable propositions. But it wasn't a nothing burger, it wasn't unserious. Um and I thought it deserved a lot of the attention that it got. Um, I don't know how you can say that the Benghazi um, hearings and the Benghazi and the and the email investigations and all of that was entirely justified and necessary. Um, and then just yawn or shrug your shoulders at the effort to get to the bottom of uh, what went into January 6th and all that. I just I find it incomprehensible as a serious argument that isn't really about sort of um, uh, motivation bias and partisanship and, and, and denial and all that kind of thing. Um, but that sort of raises a good point, or I don't know if it's a good point. It raises a, something worth talking about. Um, and since there's no one here to stop me, I'll talk about it. Um, the, you know, the Casey Hutchinson secret service, um, allegation, which again, I think was more plausible than a lot of the detractors claimed at the time, simply because she said that she heard it directly from Tony Arnato, who, who claimed to like be there or, uh, and with, uh, that guy Engel who was there. Um, I think Renato was there too, right? Sorry, I need more coffee. Regardless. The version she heard was um, told immediately after it happened by people who were in the vehicle and was not and that version was not corrected. Right. So like that's a different kind of thing than some secondhand hearsay that you get, you know, when you're sitting at a bar days later and people are talking, you know, there are all sorts of exemptions to, to sort of, um, you know, the admissibility of hearsay. And this is not a criminal enterprise anyway it just simply goes to a sort of like put yourself in the role of the jury member and the judge allows you to hear all of this do you find it believable as a reasonable person and i think under those circumstances i certainly never thought that she was lying i always thought it was possible that ornato was sort of lying to a cute girl or exaggerating in the heat of the moment or something um but um i always thought that she was utterly believable and saying what someone had told her and a lot of the coverage kind of skipped the fact that she never said she knew it was true she said this is what so-and-so told me which is a different thing and does not get to her honesty but this is one of these great examples of like one of these uh you know you know, one of these sort of capture the flag kind of media cycles where, um, or like rugby kind of media cycles where, you know, one side gets possession of the ball and starts running with it. And then all of a sudden the other side gets possession of the ball and starts running with it. And you get a lot of people who get out ahead of where the facts are. Right. And, um, um, and I struggle with this, struggle with this for years. You know, I've said for years that I, I try really hard not to win the race to be wrong first. And, you know, I was saying that before Twitter, you know, took that game to a Olympic levels. Um, and it's really, really hard when you feel so committed that the other side is lying and rigging the system and putting their thumbs on the scale and the media is an active participant um, in politics, but denying that they are, and then the facts go a different way. And you're like, aha, I see a bot, you know, and I gotcha. I get the, I, I, I've, I've made huge mistakes in my life getting caught up in that kind of thing. I'm not saying I won't get caught up in it again, because sometimes you actually, everyone, sometimes you think that you haven't been caught up in it, right? You just, um, you think you got the goods on, how, uh, you know, on proof that, uh, some existing narrative was wrong or some pre-existing narrative was right and you want to run with it. And so like, I got, you know, look, I, I get grief all the time on Twitter and I haven't gone back and deleted the tweet, but like Jim Treacher 
had some tweet about how he liked about the 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 Biden the 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 Hunter Biden laptop thing, and I had this sort of incredulous wait. You actually believe the story about how he got the laptop? You take it at face value or something like that? And people dunk on me. I mean, like the the Hunter Biden laptop world. You know, the people who are obsessed with the Hunter Biden laptop story, um, which I think is a legitimate story. I just don't think it's as relevant as 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 they've convinced themselves. But it's it's you know it's a, it's, it's a legitimate thing to like cover and should be covered better by the mainstream media than it is. But, uh, that crowd, I mean, if I go, if I go through my open Twitter mentions, you know, the replies from like the non blue check Mark, you know, world, there isn't a day that has gone by in, in what, like a year and a half since that story broke that, uh, someone isn't attacking me or dunking on me or liking an attack on me and all that kind of stuff. And the thing is, is like, I still find the story about how Giuliani got the laptop to be very sketchy. Um, I never said that the stuff on the laptop was fake, nor I don't think I have, I have ever said that the story was illegitimate. I just felt like this thing was way too convenient and too weird to like get way over my skis on. Um, now it's turned out that, you know, whether my prudence was justified or not, it's turned out that the story is true. And I have, you know, Hunter Biden's a sleazeball. And he's, he's clearly morally corrupt and there's reason to believe that like, uh, he's getting money, um, to be less publicly morally corrupt at minimum, to be less of a problem for his father. Um, but my point isn't to talk about Hunter Biden, um, because Lord knows there are plenty of warriors who want to volunteer for that. It's just to admit that like, that was one of these times where I, I held back jumping into the debate about a story because I wanted to wait and see if it was true. And it turned out to be true. And people are still giving me grief over it. Another one was this. So I want, my point is to talk about this, this temptation, right? This seduction, the siren song about leaping into, um, stories before they're fully nailed down or allegations until they're fully nailed down. I had to do CNN. It feels like a year ago, like last week, about, um, I did the primetime show about, um, about the nine o'clock show, um, um, about the 10 year old rape victim story, which, um, I was not very happy to have to talk about. Um, I don't blame them for wanting to talk about it. It's like, it's fair game, particularly for primetime cable. Um, it was a real story, but yeah, it just the whole the underlying facts are so grotesque and horrifying and infuriating to me, and um, and those kinds of cases are what we're going to be debating about for a long time to come as this this country settles into a new post row equilibrium. But you know, the point I made on the on the show was that you know in the setup piece, the host uh, rightly criticized by my lights. Jim Jordan for just to refuse for refusing to sort of admit he was wrong for saying the story was a lie and made up and the media lied about it. And he should have just, you know, said, look, I got out a little over my skis on this one, uh, you know, and take one for the team and, or just, you know, own up to like how he got it wrong. And that's shouldn't be the hardest thing in the world, but of course, particularly in MAGA world, you're supposed to never admit that you did anything wrong and certainly never apologize. Um, but the host also dinged the wall street journal for admitting it got the story wrong, running a correction, running a clarification. Um, and I don't think, I don't think you can criticize both, right? Because criticize, you know, the wall street journal, as far as I can tell, did the, I mean, you could criticize the original piece that it ran, you know, this was too good to check or whatever. We'll get to that in a second. But, um, the Wall Street Journal editorial side, you know, I have my disagreements with it, you know, in all sorts of ways, ideologically and otherwise, but they have high standards and they do good work and, you know, they got something wrong and they admitted it. And, um, you can't in one breath ding someone for refusing to admit they got something wrong and then ding someone for admitting it. And, um... And I think that this, and so part of my point was, I think it was entirely understandable 
Um, in the same way, I think my position on the Hunter Biden laptop thing was entirely understandable. To be skeptical about that story the way it was first reported. It had a one source thing. I think Glenn Kessler's fact check on it was fine. And man, if you want to see, you know, some concentrated left wing hate, go read the comments of the Washington Post on Glenn Kessler. He's the Washington Post fact checker. Read his fact check on that 10 year old rape victim story. And I mean, it's, I mean, it gets a little boring with the whole, you know, with one Glenn Kessler Glenn needs to be fired um, response after another. But man, it's just, uh, it's pretty intense. Um, I thought the way the story was written smelt fishy. Um, I think the fact that so many Ohio public officials, admittedly Republicans, got out there and said it smells fishy. Um, I think the way that the one source for the story refused to sort of provide more smelt fishy, but lo and behold, at least maybe something happened while I was gone. It turned out to be a true story. And, um, and so like, I'm fine with skepticism about breaking news stories. Um, I think where people get into trouble is where they get the first convenient report or, or data or fact, whatever you want to call it. And they say, aha, this proves the media lied again. When in fact, the, the sort of convenient new fact may be the thing that is not true um, rather than the underlying story. And, you know, there have been times where I've gotten out, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm still pissed at myself. The Sabrina Early story, I think that was her name, you know, the U University of Virginia date rape story. Um, a friend of mine sent it to me and he said, this really smells like BS. It was the Rolling Stone thing. And um, I read it and was like, oh, my God, this does not seem plausible. And I sent it to a friend of mine who went to UVA, lives in Charlottesville, knows that community really well. And she talked me out of doing a column saying this is this is not believable. And then by the next week, it became very clear. It was still early for the mainstream media to admit it. But by the next week, it became very clear that it it was bogus and a couple people beat me to the punch. Uh, I was still one of the early ones to say it was bogus. I remember people attacking me for it. Sometimes it's perfectly fine to like put yourself out there and say, um, you know, this isn't real and, or this isn't, I don't think this is true. And I think the facts as, as people had them in the, at the, like when the journal wrote the, the too good to check thing, terrible headline, by the way, just terrible headline. Um, um, and I think that's one of the things that really got people furious and, and, and frankly, rightly so. You should just never have the words too good associated with anything involving the rape of a 10-year-old girl. Um, but uh, I think there was enough stuff there to be, to be, to be convinced in that, that that story was not true. And, and then it turned out to be true. And, um, I think this is partly the argument, you know, it's part of somewhat central to the dispatch is, you know, slowing things down a bit, taking your time, you know, not, um, you know, being in the sort of intellectual or repertorial world where you grab the nearest weapon to have in every situation. Um, but what bothered me about the, um, the, massive spectacle of the, the riot of dunking from the left against all of these uh, Republicans who got this stuff or the, all the right wingers who, who pounced on the story, calling it a lie when it wasn't a lie is that the left does this all the time too. This is not a left wing, right wing thing. I mean, yeah, it manifests itself differently on the left and the right. Because the distribution of, of where, you know, left-wing journalists are and right-wing journalists are in the sort of broader culture and ecosystem is different. The institutions that the left has greater influence over than the right are going to create an asymmetry about how some of these things unfold. And it's going to give, you know, it's always given conservative media critics this kind of, of which I was one in good standing for a very long time. Uh, given us this sort of we're rebels against the Death Star kind of vibe, you know, the whole Dan Rather memo gate thing uh, 
spawned, you know, uh, you know, a grand tradition of, you know, that's where that's that's where the pajamas media uh, name comes from. That's where the vast right wing conspiracy, not from the per se, the Dan Rather thing, but, you know, these people who were basically conservatives coming up in the age of blogging, who were fact-checking and crowdsourcing in real time the BS in the mainstream media. And there was a real sort of, you know, you know, esprit de corps about, uh, you know, being the, the Davids against all of these Goliaths. And it was a bunch of bloggers, you know, who successfully um, called out CBS News in 60 Minutes on the Memogate stuff. And regardless, more broadly, it's like this kind of, again, I don't like the phrase for the 10-year-old rape victim, but this too-good-to-check phenomenon, um, that is a phenomenon, that is a dynamic of the human mind. That is the dynamic of, of, of the social pathologies or the, the, the social dynamics of human beings. And it happens across the ideological spectrum. Um, it happens at elite institutions. It happens at, you know, um, much more humble institutions, uh, group think, uh, motivated reasoning, uh, witch hunt mentality, too good to check. These are things that are just simply baked into the human condition. And the, the lack of humility from everybody, you know, dunking on the, people who got out over their skis on the 10 year old on the right on the 10 year old rape victim thing saying it was a lie and it was made up, you know, and Tucker and Jesse waters and all those guys, you know, said ridiculous things. Um, I get it. Like you're not going to convince anybody to stop making fun of those guys. But again, like the journal thing and, or even the Glenn Klessler thing of not believing it instantaneously. Uh, that's not necessarily a bad thing. And you know, I mean, like take Josh Marshall, who, I mean, I, I haven't been reading all the stuff at Talking Points Memo, but I've seen a bunch of his tweets. Um, he's been going after these Republican officials in Ohio for fueling this, uh, you know, this claim that the, 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 the rape never happened thing. And I, and I want to talk about those Republican officials in a second. But I remember vividly, you know, Josh Marshall used to get really worked up all the time in the 2000s. You know, he, had, you know, convinced himself that he had uncovered all of these, you know, sort of crazy, I want I don't want to say conspiracy theories, but crazy theories about like the motivations of Trump world going into the Iraq war. Um, he kept saying, stay tuned for the, the, the big reveal. And as less, as best I can remember, there was no reveal. There was some poll worker or census taker who's found, uh, uh, hanged in in some national forest or something like this and he extrapolated from this you know at least raised the possibility that this had to do with like lynchings of democrats or something or other that there was it turned out there was no there there and i'm not trying to single him out um because i think he tries to, he, he tries to be fact-driven but my point is is that everybody even the best of us can get worked up in this stuff and the problem is is that the next time the left is going to get it wrong you know, and the, 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 the equivalent of the 10 year old victim story is going to turn out to be untrue. And it's going to, and the right is going to say, see, this is what they always do. And they're going to forget, you know, this episode and the left, it, it, it's, it, it becomes this tit for tat cycle where, um, you know, everybody gets to say the other side always lies and makes stuff up. And that's why you don't have to trust them or believe them. And, um, nothing good sort of can come from that. And I think that one of the problems just to talk, to close the circle on this, those Republican officials like the Ohio secretary, uh, I, I can't remember the titles were, I, one of them was like, I think the attorney general, I, you know, I don't know what their motivations was. Um, I suspect it was a mix of, uh, you know, of, of, of sincerity and partisan fervor, you know, but they, you know, they made phone calls and said, Hey, we can't find any evidence of this. They probably didn't look very hard apparently. Um, and they extrapolated from that. Um, aha, this lets me go on Fox and say what everybody wants me to hear. And I think this is increasingly a problem with, um, 
you know, just sort of the Republican Party writ large. It's also a problem with Democrats, but in a slightly different way, where the incentive structure to get your five minutes on Fox saying, um, you know, the left is up to no good, the left is lying, is so powerful, it causes you to um, forget to do your due diligence. And I understand that Republican politicians are, are politicians and that Republican appointees are Republican appointees and there would be politicians too. Um, but, uh, you know, the first obligation for a public official isn't to sort of feed the beast of outrage and anger that is sort of cable news and social media frenzy. It's to know the job, know your facts, be a servant of your constituents and the people that elected you. Um, and, and also the people that didn't elect you, you know, the governor of Ohio is the governor of Ohio. He's not the governor of Republican Ohio or Democratic Ohio. And, um, the sort of the siren call of owning the libs or trolling the cons or whatever is so powerful these days that I think it causes a lot of people to just forget about the due diligence so that it can leap into the slipstream of narrative formation and become, you know, 15 minute heroes. Um, so where to go with, from here? Um, oh, so on the, I did Barry Weiss's podcast the other day, uh, right before I left and, um, it's out and up now. We'll put, we can put it in the show notes. Um, we're talking about election denial and all this kind of thing. And, uh, a couple of people asked me to explain, and presumably they're not close readers of mine, but they asked me to explain why I think the criminal referral aspect of the coverage of the January 6th committee is BS. And I apologize if I've talked about it on this here before, but I'll just explain it quickly because I do think it's a, an important point. Um, I think the media um, and the January 6th committee and the Democrats have all done the public and themselves a disservice by talking about the January 6th committee as like this um, sort of almost teleological, like its purpose is to generate a criminal referral. Um, and what is a criminal referral, you ask? Well, a criminal referral is sort of bookish. Um, which is it? Which is Yiddish for male bovine excrement? Um, it's not quite the same. Uh, Bukkis means nothing, right? Uh, but or it's a very specific thing, right? The specific thing is uh, in the context of uh, contempt of Congress, like defying a subpoena, lying to Congress, that kind of thing. There is a single statute that talks about a criminal referral, and it basically just says. Hey, DOJ, we think this person is violating the law. And we think that because we've had, we have subpoenaed them to do X or we have compelled, you know, production of this for that. And they're not doing it right. Um, beyond that, there is no such thing as a criminal referral during the, you know, the Obama years. Um, I had friends who, you know, who, worked in DOJ, not just the Obama years, but the Trump years too. You know, uh, I have friends who've worked at the DOJ. I have friends who've worked on the Hill. Like congressmen constantly send letters to the Department of Justice saying, I want you to investigate this, or um, I believe that this is worthy of a criminal probe about that. And unless you're the chair of a committee, um, most of the time, that stuff just gets filed away. I mean, I don't think they throw it away because they have record, you know, record keeping laws. But uh, most of the time you don't even get a, the congressmen don't even get a response. Um, the chairmen are supposed to get like by tradition, not by law, at least a written acknowledgement of the letter. And it's usually some boilerplate of we received your letter of June 26 about the, um, you know, the red stapler theft act of blah, 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 and how you believe that someone stole someone's stapler. 
presumably while, you know, uh, failing to file their TPS reports and blah, blah, blah. And we assure you that we will look into it. And that's it, right? Um, there is no like special obligation for the Department of Justice to investigate anything, um, never mind file criminal charges or launch an official criminal investigation because they got a notification from Congress, a criminal referral from Congress. Criminal referral, sort of like, I keep thinking about it as like, you know, George Costanza and Kramer arguing about the duty-free shop, you know, and, you know, and Kramer loves duty-free and George is like, you know, you know what duty is? Duty. It's like nothing. That's not a thing, you know? And I don't want to trigger Scott Linsicum about whether or not duties are in fact a big thing. My point is just simply that, and I think it was like Andy McCarthy, my friend Andy McCarthy at National Review, you know, put it this way. He said, a committee that issues a report that says um, uh, evidence of criminal activity by Andy McCarthy when he robbed the bank um, is legally no difference than a letter sent to the Department of Justice that says, hey, we think Andy McCarthy robbed the bank. Um, and so the, so, so first of all, it's much, it's, it's, it, it's part of it is like, they need some sort of like MacGuffin or like some climactic resolution, um, that advances the story to the next season by saying, okay, criminal referral. Now the criminal referral, all eyes on the justice department. And that keeps the story. It, it has an internal logic to it. Part of it is also, um, the the hangover of Watergate, where criminal referral was a thing, and and they that and they think that like this has to follow that sort of pattern. But um, my problem with the criminal referral thing is, first of all, it's just not a thing, um, and it's not only not a thing; it doesn't matter, right? Because Merrick Garland has already said they're looking very closely at all of these things; they're watching the hearings. Um, We've already got the trial, <laughs> like as we speak, of Steve Bannon for contempt of Congress. Um, we have uh, the arrest and, and investigation of Peter Navarro. Um, um, we have these various things coming out of the Secret Service investigation. Like, there's nothing more the committee could do to get the DOJ's attention that it ha that. that and the DOJ rightly, and if anybody argues about, against this, you should just, you know, tell them to check themselves before they wreck themselves. Like the DOJ should not be very responsive to Congress or the president for that matter, right? It has to be a little responsive, more responsive to the president because it is an executive branch agency. But I mean, how many political controversies over the last 50 hundred years have been about whether the president of the United States of one party or another has put undue pressure on the Department of Justice or the Attorney General, right? There is supposed to be some real church-state separation between law enforcement and criminal investigations and political branches. We all understand that. Well, it should be just as true of Congress. You know, if, if every time a con you know, every time Jim Jordan wrote a letter saying, you know, the the attorney general has to investigate Hillary Clinton because of Benghazi or something like that. Um, the department of justice would just be a political, an extension of the most political branch. And we don't believe that's how, you know, like criminal justice issues, law enforcement issues should be handled in this country, right? You should not be, you know, criminal. That's why it was so offensive to so many people for Trump to chant the locker up stuff and promise to put Hillary in jail and all that crap. Because that's 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 a violation of norms, and some of these norms are actually really important, and not and they're not just important when the people you like are in trouble. They're supposed to be important because they're important, and so like not only shouldn't the criminal referral thing be a big deal, and if it were a big if 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 the DOJ was perceived as following the the cattle prodding of Congress, particularly the prodding of the January 6th committee, that would be bad for their investigation. Let's, let's just sort of stipulate that there was some sort of seditious conspiracy and that you, there is enough, enough evidence to prove it 
about um, at Donald Trump's role and that you think that Trump committed sufficient criminality that he should actually be criminally charged by the Department of Justice. Now, I have real problems with that scenario. Um, and we can get to that if we want, but like, uh, let's just say that it's proven. Like, we got the smoking gun, he ordered the code red, whatever. Um, if that evidence exists, the DOJ at this point is going to find it anyway. And the January 6th committee, which has much weaker subpoena powers than the Department of Justice, isn't going to find it. But let's say they do find it and they hand it over to the Department of Justice. Um, given that something like 30 to 30 percent to half the country thinks the January 6th committee is fatally partisan um, and that it cannot be believed because it's just a part of the witch hunt to get Trump and they buy into all of the, you know, the strong versions of this committee is, you know, a show trial and all that nonsense. Um, if the Department of Justice is perceived as doing this investigation because Congress told them to, that makes the investigation harder. That makes it seem more political. And it's not necessary. The Department of Justice has its procedures for figuring out whether to open criminal investigations. And there's very little, if anything, that the January 6th committee can do to influence that that they couldn't put do by just putting out a report that didn't take a position on on charges. But if they take a position on charges, never mind say to the Department of Justice, you have to investigate. Well, then you know that Trump world is going to say, look, the only reason the Department of Justice is doing this is because Nancy Pelosi's January 6th committee told them to, which would not be true. But it would be an understandable, um, uh, you know, it would be a clear but false lie, right? I mean, it would just be something that people, it could sell, and it would taint the validity of the investigation. And um, I mean, you just think about how often special counsel investigations get, get cast as partisan witch hunts. Well, like a DOJ investigation that is launched by, you know, Adam Schiff, Liz Cheney, Benny Thompson, and those guys, um, is just going to be very easy for the GOP types to spin, you know? And so like less is more from the committee. I mean, more facts. Great. I'm all in favor of more facts, but you know, not, you know, but going for this criminal referral thing, which again, really isn't a thing, um, is just such a, it just strikes me as a really bad idea. Um, anyway, um, I apologize if I have, I know I talked about this a little bit with Charlie cook. Um, but I just get all these emails from people asking me to explain it. So I, I tried it again. So there you go. Uh, what else can we talk about? I mean, we're almost out of time here. Um, oh, one last thing on the, so I'm recording this Friday morning, the, the, the final installment of the summer um, January 6th hearings was last night. I don't think that there was any, massive bombshell um i think it was useful i'm not sure it was the highest best use of that prime time coupon um there were some things in it you know like super disturbing um and uh i just thought the one of the more interesting exchanges was the one between two uh house comms guys, Matt Wolking, who I know a little bit over the years of, you know, worked from with him a little bit, um, and somebody else. And it was just such a great example of the, so they were, they were, you know, in text messages, raking or emails, um, raking Trump over the coals for refusing to say anything about the cops who died or were injured. And I think it was Wolking was saying rightly that um, this is just an example of how Trump can't admit he was wrong. It's you know immoral. It's gross um, because if he says if he if 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 he expresses concerns, it's sort of it's it's, it's cracking open the door a little to admitting fault um, or not being the victim. Um, 
or throwing those people under the bus. And, uh, and I just think the interesting thing about it is, is like those guys are hardcore have been, you know, sort of hardcore MAGA Republican, um, comms guys for the last few years. At least that's my impression. If I, if I got that wrong, I will apologize, but that was, I, I remember being surprised by some of the things, you know, Wolking would send out. Um, and it's just a good example of how even at the staff level, so many of these people are closet normals. Um, and that the way they talk about Trump behind the scenes when the cameras aren't on or when they're in, they have some confidentiality is much closer to the way I talk about them publicly. Um, and you know, I, I, I do think for sure there are a bunch of true believers out there. I know there are a bunch of true believers out there who, and I don't mean true believers out in like real America. There are millions of those. I mean, true believers in Trump's inner orbit. But one of the takeaways of the January 6th hearings is that the vast majority of these people until January 6th, or certainly until the election, um, were considered true believers in good standing in MAGA world. And so it should tell you something that, you know, like, again, these hearings, they are not you know, the, they're not partisan in the sense that, you know, Benny Thompson and Jamie Raskin and Adam Schiff are saying partisan things. Of course they are. They're incredibly partisan, you know, Democrats. And, you know, and I, I think the shocking thing about them and all this is their restraint, not their partisanship. But the, the, the relevant witnesses were all very partisan, very pro-Trump publicly Republicans until at least the point of, you know, until at least election night. And then, you know, they started one by one at different points, you know, breaking off. And I'm just continually stunned by the number of people who cannot grasp how much of the Trump stuff is a con. And I wrote about this in the last, you know, G file last week, got a lot of great response to it um you know it focused mostly on steve bannon who's just a freaking liar and a fraud and a con man um and obviously so admittedly so because he says on, on tape you know in secret conver in secretly recorded conversations that he knows that trump will lie about the election being stolen and of course he knows that it wasn't going to be stolen and he doesn't care and he thinks it's great and sort of this leninist you know burn it all down crap that he has convinced himself of but like, if I if I criticize Attorney General Barr three weeks prior to January six, MAGA people would be all over me. Oh, he's a great Attorney General. You know, look at you know he was so supportive of Trump. Trump would praise him all the time and all that kind of thing. If I criticize his campaign director, if I criticize you know any of these you know uh, so Trump loyalists, um, who we now know we're, you know, struggling to one extent or another to keep the crazy at bay. Um, people would think, you know, the, the, the MAGA true believers out there would um, say, oh, that's just Trump derangement syndrome. You don't understand these guys are like Trump hires the best and um, whatever. And then it turns out that, you know, virtually the entire political leadership, these are all Trump appointees. <laughs> are going to resign in protest and one day, you know, and the attorney general did resign essentially in protest at Trump's BS. And they're like, Oh, well, those are just all rhino squishes. Really? They made it like through election day after purge after purge of, you know, insufficiently loyal people. And yet the second you get on the wrong side of Donald Trump, that just proves that you were a rhino squish. And I just wish like a lot of people could just sort of, you know, connect those dots because it is screaming in your face how much you're being spun and lied to. And I understand that at this point, the people who need to hear this aren't going to hear it from me because they're not listening to this podcast in the first place. Um, and if they are listening to it, they listen to it, they hate listen to it. And, um, but like, I, I put it this way, I have written a lot about how I hate the phrase wrong side of history. Um, I hate it when it's you, it's a big part of my book. I, you know, I, I've written a lot about it, right? 
And um, it's actually a big part of two of my books. And um, what I don't like about it is what um, uh, Richard Pipes called the Marxist twang in the phrase, which is this idea, you know, it's like Obama's version of it is, is that the, you know, the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice. Um, that's this idea that you will inevitably be proven wrong by the illuminated facts of the objective unfolding of the wheel of history. So you might as well abandon your objections now and get on board. And I don't like that sort of formulation. I have profound philosophical disagreements with it as a matter of metaphysics, right? Um, that said, there's a different version about being on the right side of history. And that version is just basically like, dude, the truth is eventually going to come out. And you're going to look really bad for doing the things that you're doing when all the truth comes out. And it is amazing to me how many of the last remaining Trump diehard types now embrace this kind of teleological history thing that they just think that nationalism is the future and that they are on the right side of this cold and personal force that is going to liberate humanity. And therefore they don't worry about what the, the future holds because, you know, that's like, you know, like Lenin's idea of revolutionary behavior is that the victors will write the history and we'll be okay. And that's at best amoral and at worst, you know, immoral to the point of being just flatly evil. But that's not my, my point. My point is that it's really stupid. It's just really dumb because, you know, just, just look at the books that have come out from the Trump administration from one Trumpy loyalist or, or at least, or, or loyalist for a time, um, uh, in his administration, right. In his campaigns, uh, look at the interviews that they've all done. Has anybody done anything like make a persuasive case that Trump's version of history um, is going to win over the long haul? Um, is there any doubt that when Trump dies or when you know the spell is broken, um, that he is going to have serious sort of defenders in the intellectual world who are going to construct um, a persuasive defense that is persuasive to anybody outside of the Kool-Aid drinkers. Um, I just think it's very extremely unlikely. I mean, every time there's a, you know, like there's a market for, for revelations that are favorable to Trump, right? There's a market for arguments that say he was right about the 2020 election and all that. So far, the only people who write anything about that stuff are, you know, are, are, unreliable narrators, partisan hacks, or, um, or just frauds. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, like 20, 2000 mules is not going to save Trump's reputation, um, or the people who work for him over time. Uh, just not going to happen. Saying the election was stolen because Mark Zuckerberg gave money to this group or that group isn't going to, uh, justify in hindsight, uh, what went into January 6th. And, you know, one of the oldest pieces of advice in Washington is, uh, if you don't lie, you don't have to remember everything. But once you start lying and you're going to get yourself into trouble because, uh, you're going to have to account for the record, you know, when you get into when you're deposed or in court or whatever. And, so much of the artifice of all of this sort of Trumpian stuff is just trying to string together lies that have very short shelf lives. Um, you know, that, and they certainly aren't going to stand the test of time. And, um, and so just this idea with this, this, this addiction to the moment and the momentary popularity and power that causes all of these people who say the truth in private, but can't say it in public to go along with this garbage. Um, you know, it was astounding and disappointing throughout the Trump presidency, but it's just sort of amazing now 
And it's, it's stunning that there are still people who just can't figure out that that's what's going on. You know, I mean, like the idea that somehow um, Pat Cipollone, Bill Barr, uh, um, you know, the entire Pence team, that they were all secret Trump-hating rhino squishes uh, um, all along and that January 6th just proved it. Um is something that you have to be so besotted on the Kool-Aid, so high on your own farts um, to still believe at this point. And yet it's all over the place. And it's just, it's stunning. And it's, and it's true of like very smart people too. I mean, I, you know, some of the reactions people from very smart people, very successful people, more successful than I am to my Steve Banerjee file last week were stunning to me. Um, you know, there's like, oh, this is just anti-Trump stuff again. Or like, this is like Jonah's emotions are getting the better of him. It's like, no, I like laid out obvious facts and logic. Um, but, you know, there are some people who, there are some marks of the long con who just can't, they've been in, they've been conned for so long. It is just too painful to admit that they were marks all along. And, um, and so I'm not talking about those people. I'm talking about the, the people who are enabling the con, who knew it was a con for years now, who uh, still go along with it either because, you know, they're making money off of it um, or they can't leave. They, 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 they're so bought into the audience that they, and the fan base that they've acquired that they just they can't switch horses at this point. Um, but like as a long-term, I mean, forget about your soul, forget about integrity and all that kind of stuff, just as a long-term play for your own reputation um, and your standing, not in the history books in terms of, you know, the scientific socialism of the Marxian dialectic, but just the inevitable way the facts are going to go. It just seems like such an incredibly bad idea. And yet, you know, you still see it all over the place. And if Trump runs again, you know, there's this piece in Axios this morning, uh, part one of a two-parter by Jonathan Swan. People should check it out about the planning going into what a second Trump administration would look like. And it lists a whole bunch of people who are sort of part of this extended network who are helping plot all of this kind of stuff. And I, I guess the reason why this, the reason this whole thing came into my mind was one, the exchange with those guys from the hearing last night with, with Matt and the other guy. But two, it was just like, seeing people's names listed that want to be part of like the second Trump administration. And I, I, you know, I'm, I'm trying not to be like holier than thou or anything like that. I've never wanted to join any administration. Um, it's not like I got a lot of offers. The only offer I ever got from the administration was from the Trump administration, which I turned down. Um, and, uh, um, but like, it is just inconceivable to me that you would want your name this week publicly written, you know, associated with the effort to get this guy reelected president of the United States. I just don't, and I, again, I, I'm not, I'm really not even talking about the morality of it. Um, even though we now know that, you know, whether it meets some legal bar. And again, I'm not in favor of trying charging Trump criminally. Um, I think that whole no man is above the law. No man is below the law thing is, has always been a sort of a, a garbagey kind of formulation. Um, and I do think that normally we should hold presidents to a higher standard and it does not bother me when we hold them to higher standards or tougher standards. Um, but I just think politically, for the good of the country, you know, absent some grand bargain where Trump accepts a pardon in exchange for not running again, I think getting into a criminal prosecution is just, it's a hot mess. That's not my point. I'm not, and I'm not, anyway, I'm not talking about the morality of any of this stuff. Um, um, although I'm sure my confirmation bias and my motivated reasoning, you know, partly as my moral disgust is driving me to these conclusions, but like, I just don't, don't understand the career plan that says, you know, amidst fresh allegations that Trump 
really tried to steal an election and foment a mob and let a mob run wild um, for hours without doing anything to stop them. Like, oh yeah, I want to be his policy director. Oh yeah, I, I want to, you know, get on board early the Trump train 2.0. I mean, you would just, I would think that like, this is the last thing you would want to be remembered for. And, um, um, and it's the last career trajectory that I could see wanting, even if you are, you know, an old fashioned political hack. And, you know, I know lots of political hacks. I don't mean it in the sort of pejorative sense that it might sound like. I just mean like, you know, people who have that sort of, they wanted a career as a political consultant or they wanted a career as like, you know, a campaign dude and they'll take the best job um, they can find, even if it's not with a candidate that they love. That is a very old story on the left and the right. And, you know, it's the life that these guys have chosen and I get all that. But like the idea that you'll, that is a good bet. It's a good investment of your own time and reputation to, to work for this guy. Um, it just, it just, I'm just in a completely different universe. I cannot get my head around it, you know, sort of psychologically at all. I mean, sociologically, I kind of understand it because it's like, where, where else did some of these dudes have to go and these women have to go? And, but, you know, and I just, it's stunning to me. Um, anyway, uh, I promise I'll be more disciplined. I'll put it this way. I promise I'll try to be more disciplined next week. Um, and, um, uh, please become, you know, please check out trying to become a member of the dispatch if you can. Um, you know, we got exciting stuff planned. Um, lots of stuff is finally coming together. There'll be a couple announcements coming. Um, and I am, you know, I'm just so eager to grow this thing. Um, and reach the scale that I think it can reach and that it should reach and do all the fun and cool stuff that, um, I think our members will appreciate. And there, and I know we've been around for a couple of years now. Um, but before this thing is, you know, before this thing reaches its correct cruising altitude, there's still time to say that you got on board early. And when you become a member, you help this podcast, you help all the podcasts. Um, you help all these other things that you get for free. Um, and continue and you can get to free, you know, whatever continually, but like you also get access to stuff that you can only get if you become a member from dispatch live to the various meetups that we're going to do, um, to special, um, you know, uh, members only podcasts and that kind of thing. Uh, so please give it a whirl. Um, I really think it's a great value. And if you have other ideas for things that we should have for members only content, you know, drop us a line. We're always interested. Uh, and with that, I'll talk to you next time. Yeah. I'm groggy and out of it and discombobulated. Yeah.